I recently and have been for months or years now have been obsessed with memory time and not so much the human condition but just how we handle day-to-day operations when we are not in the best mindset hi this is stephanie fowler and this is tony russo and you're listening to another episode of so what's your story a podcast in which we talk to authors and writers about their writing, the stories behind the story, the writing process, and any other sort of miscellaneous writing stuff that we want to talk about. Today on the podcast, we have poet Cody Pointer. His new collection of poetry, titled Delirium, has just been published by Bowen Press. Cody was also the literary fiction editor for Grub Street, Towson University's literary arts magazine, and is a managing editor for Charles Street Research, one of the largest financial publishers in the world. His poetry, especially in this collection, has been described as ethereal and haunting, and he's here today to chat with us about this new collection. So welcome to the podcast, Cody. Thanks, Stephanie. Actually, I think it's welcome back. Well, yeah? Yeah, because we were just talking a moment before we started recording that you were our 12th episode, and I think now you're going to be number 96 or something like that. Yeah. So we're happy to have you back and happy to talk about the, the new collection. Happy to be here. Hopefully I can be insightful. I, <laughs> it's been a long, long couple of weeks. So. Well, you said that you've been sort of working on this for, what, the past two years, really? Just about, yeah. Actually, the first time I came in here... Uh, it was when I was kind of halfway through the book and I didn't have any idea what it was going to be. And actually after our talk, I kind of honed in on what I wanted it to focus on. And uh, so thank you. You guys helped me <laughs> write this book. Oh, well, there we go. It's always interesting to me about poetry books because those of us on the outside, a lot of times think of them as more like collections. Like I have this and this and this, and look, I have, I have a hundred poems now I have a hundred page book, mm. but that's, that's not the process. So what, what, what was the process for you deciding what, cause you wrote poems that didn't go. So mm. were, would you like work on something and say, all right, well, this is, this is appropriate for the book and this is not, is that. For the, for this book, it, it was very much a lot of, uh, scrapping. I scrapped probably, I would say roughly 80 to a hundred poems. Originally this was a almost 200 page manuscript same as the first and i realized that's too long Hmm. um also i kind of identified what i wanted to focus on which was like absence loss um you know struggling through the human condition essentially so when i had that in mind i had to focus on like okay what poems do i have now that kind of are already in the collection that align with that and what what else do i have to do to complete it Hmm. um so essentially i was able to like i said scrap about 80 to 100 poems rework a lot of them which was a year and a half process and then i added a few Mm. i really only had to add about five to six poems because the theme was already there you you write with a a pre-notion of what you kind of want to focus on um we hone in on things and we become obsessed with these ideas and one way or another they seep out into the way we write so it was already there on on the base level i just had to you know refine it Mm. all right and i think that was one of the things that i noticed as i was reading this collection was that the sort of the theme that sort of runs through the the entire work is this sense of like loneliness or or being haunted by something that seems to be there but isn't and you know it definitely felt to me like there was a moment of that here here is a here's a an artist that's working through what what do these things mean to me and Mm -hmm. and you said sort of in an obsessive way but that sort of kind of resonated that there's this um you know, the references to time stopping, but we know that time doesn't stop. Mm-hmm. But it just felt like there was this 
moment where this artist, you, were trying to like work through what these concepts mean. Did you feel like that was intentional or did that sort of come as the theme kind of moved moved forward for you? I definitely think it came, it, it showed its face. It wasn't intentional. I generally don't sit down with the notion that, okay, I'm going to write something about this poetry or short story, whatever. Like you kind of just sit or I sit and it just kind of happens. Um, yeah, there's certain times where like I thought about like, okay, this is a concept that is interesting me. Let's explore this. Mm. Um, but as far as how this book came about, it, it fell together. Um, I had come off of, you know, a really bad depression and it's something that everyone goes through. It's more prevalent now and thankfully becoming more known um, than what it was and more focused on. But because of that hardship, um, a lot of things, and when you go through depression, you know, things don't make sense all the time. So that's kind of what I tried to play with is how can I replicate this in a way that if you're just a reader going through this, how can I instill that sense of like something's wrong without actually saying like something's wrong. <laughs> right. And when you say something's wrong, you mean like in the way that there's, there's, there's something that you think you ought to be addressing, but don't quite know how to get at it. Yeah. Because the thing for poetry for me, it's very much, like I said, it's an exploration. You don't, yeah, you can sit down and write a poem about a chair, but that's like, that's not me. Um, I use it as a means to make sense of the things that are going on around me to kind of comprehend or like resettle where I am in life and where my position is, especially like some of the stuff I've been write, uh, working on recently is more observational than kind of uh, interior. Mm. Um, but with this one, it was very much uh, like I said, let's see where we can go. What is, how can I make sense of this time? Like, especially in the stoppage of time, negative things that impact our negative impacts in our life have a tendency to kind of halt. And when we come to memories, that's the way it comes most vividly is the bad times. The good times we'll forget about them. It just, it happens. There's so many that happen at times they overlap, but it's the harder times that kind of bring about the sense of like almost ghost in the room. Um, I just kind of talk myself into a circle. Oh, no, that's okay. But no, what you were saying kind of reminds me of what happens sort of in traumatic experiences is that people will say that, you know, it feels like time slowed down, Mm -hmm. you know, and I I know that I've sort of talked about this with the accident that Patty and I had. I mean, when I think back on that, it feels like something that probably took a second and a half feels like in my mind as I remember it, you know, it feels like this hugely it feels like something that was just completely stretched out over Mm -hmm. a a length of time, which I know it wasn't, you know? Yeah. So it just definitely, you know, when you were talking about, you know, things slowing down, ghosts in the room, you know, as I was reading it, I was sort of, it sort of, the collection sort of felt like, almost like I had insomnia. Like I was like, as I'm reading a poem, you know, there, there was a poem where there's a guy and he's, you know, there's a woman next to him sleeping and then he turns and then she's not there. So it's, that ghost in the room, but it felt like at the same point, this sort of disruption of consciousness as, mm. as I was kind of moving through each poem, something was there, something was not. And it kind of reminded me of that moment when, you know, you're kind of sleep deprived and you're like, did I just see that? You know, yeah. you know, when you're falling asleep on the highway, you know, and you're like, is that a person? No, it's just a, that's just a mailbox. You know, it kind of had that same feeling. And then I remember, I'm like, oh, this collection's called Delirium. <laughs> and so it just, you know, it, I sort of felt like I was coming back to that. I was coming back to to the title, really. Yeah. 
and that's it actually started out as as the dust dances and those two flighty right Um, and i kind of like after i'd finished the manuscript which was probably about this time last year i'd finally put the nail down i was like okay i can't do this anymore like if i keep messing with it i feel like it's going to lose some it's going to lose something Mm. um but I got to change the title because that just as the dust dances doesn't for me, it didn't feel it didn't get at the core of the book. Um, but then I had written these poems that were like delirium, a movement, delirium, a, mem- uh, a memory, delirium, a moment. And I was like, OK, there's three poems. And I kind of spaced them out like I rearranged them a little bit after I came up with the title. But initially they were spaced out like beginning, middle, end. Right. So it's like, why don't I just call the book delirium? Cause that's essentially what it is. It's a, it's a fever dream of a mixture of, you know, alcoholism, depression and insomnia. And when you get those things together and they start overlaying, you lose touch of reality and you don't know where you are, where you stand. Um, you don't really, you can't make sense of a world because you don't live in reality. You live in an unreality of, you know, alcohol, yeah, sleep depri- uh, deprivation of depression. It, everything takes on a different hue and has its own weight. Absolutely. I wanted to talk a little bit more about the um, this idea of, of of the stoppage of time because it, it always has fascinated me. I I've always attributed it to it takes longer to tell the story than it does to be in the story, mm-hmm. and so we have these things, and it's like, well, first I thought, and then I felt, you know, and that's not really how it happens. You have the experience, and then when you're trying to explain that experience. That's when the time stretches. When you're processing it, you have to process it linearly, even though so many things happen simultaneously. Mm-hmm. You can't process them simultaneously. So you take this simultaneous thing and talk about it in a line, and that that kind of stretches it out. Mm-hmm. And I just the, the idea of when you get lost in which part happened which, I think, is something that comes yeah. out in that. And that's so time doesn't actually ever stand still. Um, and as you said, it moves linearly with or without us. It doesn't matter where you are. Like time is unforgiving. But the way that I kind of tried to exemplify the idea that time can stop, like, and again, moments of crisis, like time stretches, that's kind of a way for it to stop, but it doesn't completely stop. But if you are out of touch with reality, which is the basis of time, where does time go? So, and memory in itself is kind of a way to revert back to a, a time that is now long gone. And if it starts meshing into the current, well, then time's irrelevant. Right. Um, so I tried, I tried to play around with time. And at first it was a lot of, it was a lot of stretching. Um, but then I more heavy handedly added nodes of like, you know, I just straight out time stopped mm. there. The clock stopped, the batteries died. Like, cause things like that happen and you try to make, you add things that, make it more significant than what it is. That's just like what writers do. We see a leaf fall and that's got to mean something. Right. Um, so I tried to do that, but in a commonplace. Cause I, this is also, again, as I said, I was coming out of a bad time. I didn't leave my house much. Uh, I hated leaving my house. And if I did, it was to take a walk around the block to, you know, grab more beer or, you know, just get a little fresh air, smoke a cigarette. Um, but time didn't have any relevance. I was up some nights. I'd wake up at three in the morning and start reading and writing. And then I'd go to class at eight and come home and sleep from, you know, nine to 11 and get up and do it all over again. And the whole time just started blending together. So to me, time didn't have any relevance. So that's kind of, I took that like memory of that era and 
applied it and a lot of the time didn't feel like time even existed right i'd lock myself in my room and that's what it was that's what mattered so i tried to impose that on the narrative in this in a way that again was kind of heavy-handed looking back on it but i think hope it worked no i think it definitely worked because it definitely as i read it i got a sense of here is a person who is struggling with time who is struggling with ghosts who is struggling to figure out am i in this place or that place Mm. and it definitely had this sense of um process Mm. you know i'm working through this i'm trying to understand this i'm trying to see through the fog i'm trying to blink blink my eyes open enough to to see what's happening here so i definitely think that worked but i suppose my question would be did that feel cathartic or was it to to kind of create a collection like this that was so deeply personal to your experiences and to what happened to you to work that out on paper and then of course to publish that i mean did did that feel good or or not at first no (laughs) it never (laughs) felt it felt terrifying um I'd submitted it to a handful of other publishers before Robert, uh, the publisher at Bowen Press, even was like, yeah, we, you know, we like what you're doing here. We think it has, there's something here, like, let's do it. Then it felt cathartic because there was a payoff, which is you know, kind of lousy to think about. But at the end of the day, like we were talking about when we first got here, right. you just want to create. So like in that instance, it, it felt that this wasn't for nothing. Like every, all the struggle, all the toil, all the playing with the words, there's a payoff. Someone cares. And Someone I, I don't know cares. Yeah, exactly. Somebody who's like not my, you know, my friend, my mom, my grandparents, my significant other, like they care. They want to invest in my, you know, perspective of the world or my, you know, issue that I went through, whatever it is that you wrote about, like somebody cares. Mm. That hits home or hit home for me when I got that email, like, you know, back in March, April ish, then I felt like a resolution. It, I felt like something had been lifted from me and I was able to actually move on. And, uh, from there I actually was able to start like writing again. Um, it kind of was the same thing that happened with the first book. Of course, that was like a whole series of mishaps that happened after the publication. This one was the other. Once it was accepted, I was able to write again, opposed to like grieving that this thing was out there so I struggle with that so often when you the the idea is you write something and you finish it and you put it out and then you start writing something else. But for me, it doesn't feel finished until either it's published or everyone says they're not publishing it like that's that feels like part of the story to me. So I can't I have trouble starting something new when there's uh when, when there's that question out there is, is this going to get published? Yeah. Is this going to find an audience? You know, is, is any, is anybody else going to see this at all? Mm. And, and this, and again, one of the things that we were saying before we got started is the amount of work in just getting it published is, is at least as much as writing it. It's, it's oh, harder yeah. and less fun, certainly than, <laughs> than doing the writing. It's more of a rinse and repeat when it comes to the, the publishing aspect of it or getting something in. Cause you know, you got to go through and spend like hours looking for, you know, magazines that are accepting submissions. You got to make sure it's formatted the right way. You got to make sure that, you know, it's hopefully in line with the content that they're publishing, unless you just kind of do what I do and just submit anyway, because 
not going to read thousands of thousands of magazines. I just don't have that time to do that anymore. It's it's amazing that people still give that as advice because I think that's the worst advice in the that's world. So bad. I, I don't I I don't have time to check to make sure. And guess what? They're either going to publish it whether I'm familiar be, uh, because of the internet and not not a dig at it, but just because they're getting so many submissions mm -hmm. anyway. Like the amount of time it takes for me to tailor a query letter. I saw last month you published this <laughs> and I really liked it. And my story isn't much different from that. No, no. Yeah. Here's my story. <laughs> it, if you like it, that's awesome. I would love it if you published it. But if not, cool, we can be friends, but let's move on. Yeah. And it also pigeonholes the writers like or, or that magazine. Are they just going to publish things that are in that realm that have that same voice? It, It's not good advice. Yeah. No, it's I don't do it. I just write, blindly submit, make sure it's formatted the right way, call it a day. But I mean, yeah, publishing and trying to get published is probably more work than a lot of people think. Oh, sure. Um, yeah. Especially if you're just starting out or like you're considering uh, jumping into trying to do have publications. And even then, get, get used to rejections. Oh, yeah. Rejection is... is I, uh... I started an inbox um, or a folder on my emails just for rejections yeah. because I want to keep track of where I've submitted and what they said to me. Cause sometimes you'll get the people who are like, we liked your story. It made it to, you know, so-and-so round, but we turned it down. Focus on this. Other times you'll get, thanks for submitting. Not for us at this time. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's just like, mm, okay. And I, I actually, I made this note earlier cause I wanted to talk a little bit more about this when you were talking about the, the stoppage of time. Um, if, if there's no one waiting for you, then time also doesn't matter. Like if you don't have, if you don't have something, if you don't have a deadline, if you don't have something to do, if you don't have a purpose, then mm -hmm. like time is for time is for doing things. Yeah. Time isn't just for doing nothing. You don't need time to do nothing. Time is when someone's waiting for you to do something or someone's waiting for you to come back or waiting for you to call mm -hmm. or something is undone that needs completion. And one of the f fun, <laughs> one of the interesting things about depression is that you tend to get crushed by all of the things that you should be doing and aren't. And every mm -hmm. time you don't do one more thing, you're a little bit more crushed by that. And then there's not enough time to get all of those things yeah. done. And and it, it, it builds on itself, but it's also another, another way where you can take yourself out of time by just mm -hmm. not having anything that can get done. Yeah. And it's also the fact that like, so time is generally a scheduling type, type thing. You use it to keep track of everything that's going on. But at the same time, 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 time. <laughs> um, in the same hand, when you are going through a depression, you know, you lose that a sense of purpose. Yeah, time doesn't matter to you um, if you have nothing to do. And I, I did have things to do, but like in that same hand, like everything that was afflicting me was in the past that I couldn't get back. Um, it was a lot of guilt uh, that was imposed because I was doing things that I shouldn't have been doing that didn't align with the schedule and, you know. So it's interesting. Um, again, I recently and have been for months or years now, I have been obsessed with memory time and not so much the human condition, but just how we handle day-to-day -day operations when we are not in the best mindset. Right. Whether it be depression or just like, uh, you know, like an accident. Yeah. When you deal with a trauma, time doesn't matter as long as you're, you're trying to get better. But how do you get better when you don't know how to get better? Right. You just wait. But then each day doesn't feel like you're getting, there's no progress. There's nothing to gain because that 
you know, the weight of depression itself doesn't alleviate a broken leg. You can't see mending. You just wait. And I think the use of um, dust and ash that was sort of repeated in different ways throughout the poems to me sort of was almost symbolic of this concept of time and something that was a thing that is no longer a mm-hmm. thing. You know, we ha- you have a cigarette and you smoke it and it burns and it's ash. And now the ash is a, is a memory, if you will, of something that was before. And, you know, dust is, you know, could be any number of things mm-hmm. that... So I saw in the poetry this kind of focus on dust and ash as it kind of sort of kind of cycled through and, mm-hmm. and went through the poems. And I, and, it, and I think that was one of the other things that sort of reinforced this sense of, you know, here is someone who's really trying to, who is staring at these really heavy concepts and trying to figure out where do I fit? How do, what do I make of these things so I can sort of like get to the other side of this? Mm-hmm. You know, it's almost like working through an equation of sorts. Yeah. And the kind of gross part about dust is most of the time dust is, you know, decayed Us. skin that has <laughs> yeah. left. So I kind of played around with the idea of dust and ash because ash is the destructive remains of something where dust is just the happenstance of being um so dust is i guess the human component of what's missing and ash is the destructive decisions that then we have to deal with as we try to move forward like smoking in itself like i haven't smoked in a year and a half now which i'm pumped about but also kind of you know every now and again sure but Smoking the act itself is a destructive thing. You're not only poisoning your body, but you're not helping anything outside of you either. You're hurting others around you. It's, you know, all in all, it's an act that people participate in for themselves and also against themselves. Um, And that's the, like the result of that is ash. So I tried to play around with those two concepts, which uh, another thing that just kind of fell together. I wrote a lot about smoking because I did it a lot. Um, (laughs) You write what you know. I, during you know, some of my deeper bouts of depression, I have a tendency to stare and like you lose touch with like, you know, time, reality. But then you also every now and again, when you snap back, will notice like things going on. And for me, it was a lot of dust. Like I would notice dust floating in the morning light or underneath of my little desk lamp that I'm staring at trying to think of like what to write. So I was like, wait a minute, that's interesting because it is, that is the past actively like around us, but it's not at the same time. Yeah. How did you um, refine these? I mean, we talked a little bit about things that kind of went through, but once you kind of determined sort of what the theme was going to be and sort of these other Mm -hmm. elements that were going into it, can you talk a little bit about how, you know, the poems that made the cut, Mm -hmm. what was the process like of refining those for you? So the process for that was more or less, some of it was favoritism, I'll admit, and then I just kind of reworked those that I really liked to kind of format it. But for the most part, it was uh, it came down back to the thematics. Like what what poems even loosely match up to what this book should be, what mm. I want it to be with the ones that have, you know, I've either just written or that uh, were the basis. Like the delirium poems were like the guide map for everything because I had a beginning, I had a middle and I had an end. So what comes in between each one where in a book where time is trying to be absent, how can I add a timeline to this? Which Man. is was an interesting process to go through and ultimately it came through a lot of distortion. So memories were a big part. Um, what poems that I write that tied in or had some semblance of a memory, 
um, fever dreams, which poems that I write that didn't make sense in reality, um, and what poems were real. Uh, what did I write, honestly, that wasn't meant to be a poem, it might have been a note that I can kind of like break down or rework into a poem. So it came down to a process of selection. Um, and then I stole something from Milan Kundera. He, uh, when he writes his novels, picks a handful of words that he focuses on. And those words become the basis of a lot of like what the book is about. So I used that approach and wrote down a, a list of words, picked about six or seven of them, and then applied those words repeatedly through the manuscript. And then a lot of the poems already had the words in them. I just had to kind of like copy and paste, so to speak, move them around a bit and adjust. But so it came from theme. It came from um, selection and, you know, happenstance. For me, it's always about instead of picking words, I love I love that idea of, of choosing words to focus on. Um, I try to feel a certain way about the topic and I try to think about how I feel about it while I'm writing. And then at the end, you're like, oh, look, there's a, there's a theme. It's just it's just a little miracle yeah. that happens to me all the time. And I'm I'm always dazzled by it. Like you get to the last line, you're like, oh, that's what that was about, mm -hmm. you know, and there's just and so for me, the way to get that is is more about focusing on on a notion. But this this idea of making sure that there are words that kind of mm -hmm. follow through, it's it's just super intriguing. Yeah, it for me, it just helped keep it keep me on pace of what was going on, because otherwise, like I'll go through and I'll rework it and it'll, it might change the whole you know meaning right. of the poem. So that was the other struggle is how do you rework a poem that is very deeply personal, but in a way that isn't it doesn't make it directly linked to the author. Cause I mean, poetry has this, and you know, maybe it's by nature penchant to be from the direct eyes of the poet. And I tried to put a distance between me and the book. Like I had the original content. I said, okay, this is what it is, but this is also too close. There's some of the poems I'd rework completely. I took the idea throughout the rest and then rewrote. And it kind of worked out. Um, there's one poem in here that I kind of tried to make into a myth, if I like almost like a creation story um, of how, you know, our mistakes, essentially how our mistakes create us. But I've tried to spin it in a way of like, uh, again, creation story. So stuff like that was what the words, like almost my word bank helped me yeah. do and achieve. Cause then you can, you can reach back and say, well, I'm struggling. Let me look at these words and mm. see if any of them will help. Yeah. <laughs> if I can use it to, to kind of drive a peg into the wall to climb up another yeah. another level. And the good thing is about that is also when you, so I did have the manuscript final, I submitted it, but during the process of getting it, you know, the actual script with Robert finalized, I actually did get rid of another three or four poems, I think it was, just because they were too closely aligned with some of the other poems that said what they were trying to say just a little bit better. Mm -hmm. um, even now, I wrote, went back and reread it when uh, I got this in the mail, and I was like, okay, I wish I would have got rid of this one. I wish I would have changed the order of this. It's never actually done, even though it is done. There's nothing like or, or the other thing I actually wanted to ask you about this is you write everything with the idea that you're going to get it published. Or, mm. But once it's like, yes, we're committed to putting these poems into a book, what's the pressure when you're like – how do you keep yourself from reworking them to death? Cause you're like, well, this is not perfect. And now that I know that it's going to be in a book, it has to be perfect. Drinking. 
<laughs> walking away and drinking. I think uh, I got the final manuscript for this in August. And we, she was, my girlfriend was helping her sister, you know, do stuff for her wedding while I was sitting at the counter looking over my manuscript. So we all just were drinking wine and it turned into a girl's night. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that honestly was the biggest challenge um, because I, I found errors in the book. I was like, okay, well like not this book, the manuscript, like, oh, like I have to go through this again and make sure it's perfect. Like it has to be perfect because my first book was far from perfect. That right. thing is a train wreck. I would like <laughs> to go back through and just rework it just for fun but i know no one's probably going to pick it up um but with this one i was like this has to be this is my first book this right. has to be perfect like this is the one that means something to me um so honestly yeah just i i had to step away a lot i had to tell the uh the editor in my head to go away and just let it be um obviously take out the glaring mistakes that you notice but for the most part it is what it is just Stop saying it at the, yeah. I remember going through a, a manuscript. I was fortunate because I was in the newspaper business and I, mm. and I could, and they were like, you can't make any significant changes. And I would look and I'm like, no, I, I can change this all. And I, I wouldn't add a line, you know, like mm. knowing that a line isn't going to, cause that's what they're afraid of. They're afraid of line drops and they're afraid yeah. of. And so if you could make it so that the line wasn't going to drop and you can make that fix, but then you get to this over tweaking where like, should I say it like this? Or should I say that? And it's just, you may as well go with your first instinct. Cause that's, that's yeah. why they bought the book. Yeah, and that's something I always struggle with, and I'm kind of I'm trying to step away from that and stop over editing, um, because I did realize again when I went back and reread this, there was like a poem or two that I was like, okay, I took too much away, or I added too much, and mm -hmm. it's coming over too heavy-handed or repetitive. Um, and I recently started, you know, I we last time I was here two years ago, I talked about routine and the importance of that, and of course I fell out of it for two years. Um, but now that we, I've moved into a place and I'm a little more settled, I've been trying to wake up every morning, you know, between six and six thirty, and write for at least an hour, um, to try to like get myself back into the habit of doing so. But it's also allowed me to just write, no editing, uncensored, whatever it is, get it down, deal with it later. Um, so I'm hoping that'll help moving forward with some poetry, short fiction, whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's also allowed me to, since publishing this, kind of take a step away from some of the material that I ran from. I never liked writing about my hometown. I never liked writing about much personal stuff because I felt like it was too corny or you know whatever else. But ultimately, that's the stuff that's going to have the most impact. That's the stuff where the emotions come out of because you've been there. You know it. And it doesn't have to be exact, but just a variation of that or a, a situation to be planted as like, you know, the beginning of a book, it matters. Um, so I've been able to write about more personal after publishing this book, which is, uh, it's been good. I wrote the other morning and I just was like, yep, I'm, I'm getting places. This is, things are happening. That's a good feeling. Yeah. It's a very good feeling. It's rare. <laughs> so I'm going to soak it in when I get it. In the world of being a writer, the good feelings, they are rare. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Crippling self-doubt is uh, everywhere. It's, it's ever-present. All right, Stephanie, well, now this is the part of the show where you thank the guest. Oh, my gosh, Cody. Well, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast and talking with us. Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me. It's always a pleasure. So What's Your Story was produced by Saltwater Media, an indie book publisher in Berlin, Maryland. Visit us at SoWhatsYourStoryPodcast.com, where you can find past episodes, guest bios, show notes, and all sorts of fun stuff. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Radio Public, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, take a second and give us a great review.
tell your story.